If you are visiting with us this morning, uh, let me be the first person, hopefully the first anyways, to uh, apologize to you. I, uh, in fact, while it is debatable, uh, do believe I am better looking, I am not Pastor Greg. So for that, I do apologize if you came expecting to hear Pastor Greg. Um, he is, in fact, in Mississippi. He is preaching um, a friend of his missions conference. So with that, I apologize. Uh, if you are not visiting here, surprise, we tricked you again. We got you, we got you again. Uh, but, but really, you, you ought to know by now, um, if I'm up here, we certainly need to begin with prayer. We need lots of prayer. So if you would, just uh, join me for a second as we pray and we'll get this thing going. God, thank you so much um, for this opportunity we have to gather in your house this morning. Father, we know that uh, apart from your presence, we can do nothing here in this place. So we pray that you would meet with us in a special way over the next few moments. Pray that you would sit me down, you would stand up, and you would just speak through me. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week, Pastor Greg, he walked us through two chapters in the book of Numbers. Um, it was chapters 14 and 15. He walked us through these, and, and they served to highlight the fact that faith, much like love, is an action word, right? Thus, in order to exercise your faith, it is going to take some action on our behalf, right? And in order to illustrate this, we looked at, uh, we looked at two chapters. We looked at the nation of Israel in Numbers 14 and Numbers 15. And if you're familiar with the book of Numbers, you would know that by now, Israel um, has sent, they've just sent 12 men in chapter 13, to spy out the land that the Lord has already promised to them. And despite the fruitfulness of the land, despite everything that they saw in the land, only two of the twelve returned with a good report. The remaining ten, stricken with fear by the inhabitants of the land, um, they came back to give a bad report. Review it with me, if you will, in Numbers 13. Uh, we'll start in verse 30. It says, "...in Caleb still the people before Moses." And he said, let us go at once and possess it, for we are able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, we be not able to come against this people, for they are stronger than we. But they bought up an evil report of the land, which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, the land through which we have gone out to search it is the land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it were men of great stature. And there we saw giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so were we in their sight. And thus, in chapter 14, Israel refuses to take action. Crippled with fear over this bad report over these inhabitants, they refuse to listen and trust the Lord. They refuse to enter into the promised land. And if faith is an action word, and I would wholeheartedly agree that it is, Israel, as of now, has none. They had refused to take action, right? And we know that faith is an action word. In fact, that's why James tells us, right, that faith without action or faith without works is dead. So we see that Israel has no faith at this point. And I'm not suggesting that they didn't believe in God, but I am suggesting that they didn't have faith in him. And really, that brings us to one of our biggest issues that we see with many, if not most, believers today. We believe in a God that we do not trust. 
He said, oh, no, 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 not me, man. You got me wrong, Travis. I trust God. Really? Your, your backup plan seems to suggest that you don't. Right? Your lack of action seems to suggest, it seems to highlight maybe this disbelief in your life, this lack of faith in your life. Right? Your, your plan B suggests, oh, man, I better be ready in case God's plan A doesn't work out. At any time, I, I may have to take over. In case he just doesn't know what he's doing. Oh, church, can I tell you this morning, can I tell you that, that when it comes to the Lord and his promises and his plans, there is a high price to pay for our lack of faith. And this certainly was the case with the nation of Israel. What was the price they had to pay? Numbers 14, verse 11. And the Lord said unto Moses, how long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed unto them, I will smite them with pestilence and disinherit them. I will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. You understand, in spite of all the signs and all the wonders that they had just seen coming out of the Exodus, all the things that God has already done for them, they refuse to trust him. And God says, you know what, Moses, I'm done. I'm done with them. That's it. I'm going to wipe them off the map with a plague, and I'm going to make you a greater nation. I'm going to start all over with you. And we read later in the passage in chapter 14 that Moses intercedes on their behalf. Right? And, and just as a side note, praise God for people who are willing to bend the ear of God on your behalf. Moses intercedes. But it didn't come without a cost. You understand? Their lack of faith, their lack of inaction was costly. And what was that cost? Numbers 14, verse 29. Your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness. And all that were numbered of you, according to the whole number, from 20 years old and upwards, which have murmured against me, doubtless ye shall not come into the land concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein, save Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. But your little ones, which ye said should be his prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which, I, uh, which ye have despised. You understand, rather than, rather than reaching out and grasping everything that the Lord had for them, rather than reaching out and grasping the thing that the Lord had already promised to them, now they were going to wander the wilderness for 40 years waiting on an entire generation to die. God said, I will give that land to your children. The very ones that you said were going to be as prey to the inhabitants of that land, those are the ones that are going to enter in not you. And that's exactly what happened. For 40 years they wandered the wilderness, waiting on an entire generation to die, having left everything, everything that the Lord had promised to them, everything that God had for them in their lives, having left it all on the table. And that is where we find our text this morning. An entire generation has died in the midst of the wilderness. Now we find a new generation under new leadership, once again, standing at the, the brink of the promised land, about to reach out and grasp everything that the Lord God has promised them, about to grasp everything that the ones who came before them could not. Read it with me, if you will, Joshua chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And Joshua rose up early in the morning. And they removed from Shittim and came to, to Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. And it came to pass 
After three days that the officers went through the host and they commanded the people saying, Ye, when ye see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests of the Levites bearing it, then ye shall remove from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it about 2,000 cubits by measure. Come not near unto it that ye may know the way by which ye must go. For ye have not passed this way heretofore. Verse 5, And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. So what is the key here? What is, what is the key to this passage? How was it that the Israelites were once again going to try to reach out and accomplish everything that the ones who came before them failed to do? Right? How are they going to exercise their faith in a way that reaches out and grasps everything that God has for them. The true definition of success, by the way, has nothing to do with money. It's grasping everything that God has for you. That may never, do, that may never have anything to do with money. You want to know the definition of failure? Leaving everything that God has for you on the table. How are they going to exercise their faith in a way that reaches out? And grasp everything that God has for them. Everything that he had promised for them. And I believe the answer for them and also the answer for us this morning um, is in two parts. And they'll serve as our two points this morning. And the first is this. If you and I are going to follow after the Lord, he must be treated with reverence again. Right? We have a tendency to get real, real comfortable in our relationships. Right? And our relationship with God is not exempt from this. We have a tendency to get so comfortable in our relationship with God, in fact, that we begin to lose sight of who we are in light of who he really is. Listen to me here, Job, Job 28. And unto the men he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, chapter 112, praise ye the Lord. Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord. Psalm 128, blesses every man that feareth the Lord. Psalm 128 again, thus the man shall be blessed that feareth the Lord. Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Chapter 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Proverbs 10, the fear of the Lord prolongeth days. Chapter 14, the fear of the Lord is strong confidence. Chapter 14 again, the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. Chapter 15, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. Chapter 19, the fear of the Lord tendeth to life. Listen to me, Jesus is not your homeboy. God is not the big man upstairs. He is the Lord God Almighty, the creator, the high priest, the captain of our salvation, the prince of peace, the mighty counselor, the everlasting father, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords, and he should be treated as such. Verse 3 and 4 of our text in Joshua, we read that Joshua had commanded the people, relaying to them God's plan. And it was this. He says, look, when you see the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant, I want you to get up and I want you to follow after it. But don't dare come near it. Right? The Ark of the Covenant, was a, it was a piece of tabernacle furniture. Right? A few books earlier in Scripture, we see in, in Exodus, in fact, God instructing the children of Israel. He says, I want you to, to build a structure. This is going to be a structure where he could come and he could meet with them. He could have fellowship with them based on a system of sacrifices. It was called the tabernacle. Right? It was a portable tent-like structure. It had courts and furnishings within it. It was 75 feet wide, 150 feet long. You would enter the tabernacle on the east side. 
The first thing that you would see when you enter in would be the altar. <clears throat> it would have been about four and a half feet tall, seven and a half feet wide, about seven and a half feet long. And there animals would be sacrificed. They would be slaughtered on that altar. On the other side of that, you would find a big wash basin. It would be made of brass. And there is where the priests would cleanse themselves, right, in the making of these sacrifices. Now, there was no hot water. There was no soap. It was more of a ceremonial cleansing, getting their heart right in order to make these sacrifices unto God. And then as you proceed through the tabernacle, inside of the tent, you would see another building, another tent-like structure. It was the central sanctuary or the tabernacle proper, as it were. It was 15 feet by 45 feet wide. It was divided into two rooms. Now, you and I couldn't enter into these two rooms because we are not priests. But let's just pretend for a minute that we are priests. We enter in these, uh, the first of these two rooms, which was called the holy place. 15 feet wide by 30 feet deep. In that room, in that holy place, to the left side would have been the golden candlestick. Sorry, to the left side, you're looking at me. Would have been the golden candlestick or the menorah. On the right-hand side would have been a table of showbread, one loaf for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And right in front would have been an altar of incense. But then there was that last little room, 15 feet by 15 feet. You and I couldn't enter in. As a matter of fact, nobody could enter in. There was only one guy, one time a year, that could enter in, and that was the high priest. And he could only enter in on a special day. It was Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And on that day, he had to enter in with blood. And he would enter in with the blood of an animal, and he would sprinkle it on the only piece of furniture in that room. And in that room, the holiest of holies, the only piece of furniture was the Ark of the Covenant. It was essentially a box It measured 45 inches long by 27 inches wide by 27 inches tall. It was made of wood covered with gold, but the top was made of solid gold. A cherubim on one side and a cherubim on the other. Their wings stretched out to touch in the middle. And it was there at that point that God said, I will meet with you. You understand the ark? The ark was a, what, what was it even about? You're saying God created us for a relationship with him, right? To have fellowship with him. But our sin has separated us from God, right? So God cannot just come down and sit in fellowship with us, nor can we go and sit in fellowship with him, right? As a matter of fact, tra tradition even tells us that when the, when the high priest would enter in to the holiest of holies, they would tie a rope around his ankle, and he would enter in and they would listen to hear if the bells of his robe would stop, stop jingling. And they would pull him out because they would assume he had fallen over dead. The Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of God's presence with them. But even that symbol was to be treated with the highest of reverence. Do you remember in 2 Samuel, they're transporting the ark, and the oxen nearly tips it over, right? Uzzah, he reaches out to steady the ark just to touch it to keep him from falling, drops dead. You remember 1 Samuel, chapter 6, over 50,000 men were struck dead because five from Beth Shemesh looked inside the ark. 
Do you understand? Even the symbol of his presence was to be treated with the utmost respect. The priests were going to begin to walk with the ark, and when they started out, the children of Israel were were told to follow after his presence. To put that into a little perspective, right? They said, follow after his presence, but don't dare come close. You need 2,000 cubits between you and him. Put that into a little bit of perspective. The cubit is the, the length of the average adult's forearm. Went from wrist to elbow, about 18 inches. So thus, 2,000 cubits is 3,000 feet. Over half a mile, they were told. I want you to follow after the Lord's presence, but don't you dare get near, and you had better leave half a mile between you and this symbol of God's presence. They were told to follow after the Lord's presence, and he would lead them into all that he had for them, but they were to reverence the Lord. And that brings us to our second point this morning. If you are going to follow after the Lord, you and I must sanctify ourselves. Pick up back with me in our, in our passage this morning, verse 4. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Come not near unto it, that ye may know the way by which ye must go. For ye have not passed this way heretofore. And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Right, and this this idea of sanctifying yourselves in order to prepare for the Lord's presence, in order to prepare for his coming, this was not a new idea to them at this time. Right, earlier in the book of Exodus, we see the exact same language used when Moses was going to go up to Mount Sinai to get the law for the people. Right, we read it in Exodus 19, verse 9, it says, And the Lord uh, said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that all the people may hear uh, when I speak unto thee and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them for today and tomorrow. And let them wash their clothes and be ready against the third day. For the third day, the Lord will come down in the sight of the people upon Mount Sinai. And thou shalt bound up unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that ye go not up into the mountain, nor touch the border of it. Whosoever touches uh, the mount shall surely be put to death. The idea of sanctifying yourselves in the context of both Exodus and our story in Joshua this morning, it involved washing yourself and changing your clothes. Now, once again, our westernized hygiene habits, they weren't really in play, right? So this idea of washing yourself wasn't like trying to smell good for the ladies. You understand? It was more ceremonial in effect. I'm going to wash away the old. I'm going to wash away the old sins, the old things, and prepare for the new. Prepare for what God has for me. Preparing for what was next. But since we know, biblically, that sin is defilement, God has to cleanse us before we can walk with him. We find the same idea of cleansing and changing and sanctifying ourselves in the book of Genesis, chapter 35, right? Jacob and his family are about to get a fresh start after a life on the run. We read in verse 1, it says, God said unto Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel and dwell there. And make there an altar to God that appeared unto thee when he fled us from them in the face of Esau thy brother. Then Jacob said unto his household and all that were with him, Put away the strange gods from among you and be clean and change your garments. You know what I'm saying? This wasn't just an Old Testament idea either. 
Right? The same imagery is now carried over into the New Testament. In Colossians 3, uh, verse 5 begins with mortify, or literally put to death or kill this old worldliness. Then Paul goes on, he provides a, a list of the things that would, would kind of classify, a list of the things that, that worldly people were doing. Right? He provides that list. And then after that, we pick up in verse 9, it says, Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put the old man with his deeds to death. And have put on the new man. You understand, God cannot and will not be in the presence of sin. Here's where the rub is. We are constantly so bombarded on either side with sin, not only just sin, but with the also the constant ploy to participate in sin and also the constant ploy to tolerate others that do. Right, And this is over and over and over in our lives, so much so that we've become desensitized to sin itself. So much so that people fail to understand what the big deal really is with sin anyways. But we see it over and over again in Scripture. The emphasis is on the godless self-centeredness of sin. Every sin is a breach of what Jesus called the first and great commandment. Right, and it's not merely that we just that we have failed to love God with all of our being, but when we sin, we are actively refusing to acknowledge Him as Creator and as Lord. And here's how: right, when we sin, we reject the, the position of dependence on Him as our Creator. And what we do is we suggest, as Adam and Eve did long ago, that somehow we know better than Him. Right? Hey, don't do this thing. Ah, maybe He didn't really mean that. And suddenly we suggest that we know better. And in that. We, we make a claim or an attempt to occupy this self-dependence that is only his. Do you understand? Nobody but God is dependent on nobody. Only God. And as the created, we are solely dependent on the creator. But when we sin, we are making a ploy to say, you know what? I know better. I am no longer dependent on you. It was John Stott that said sin is not a regrettable lapse of conventional standards. Its essence is hostility towards God. It's suing an active rebellion against him. And listen to me, if you're going to actively rebel against God and be openly hostile towards him, I am going to set myself apart from that. I'm not going to be in its presence. Oh, and here's a kicker. You never thought you'd hear this from the pulpit. I am not going to accept its presence or hint that I am down with its presence or hint that I like its presence by, by with what I like on Facebook or by with what I like on Instagram. Do you understand? If you're going to be openly hostile towards God, I want no parts of that. I'm going to set myself apart for that. I'm going to sanctify myself. Can You know, I, I used to do these things, but now I don't. Now I have washed myself of those. I have put on the new man. I am no longer going to participate in these things. I am set apart. Can I just be real with you for a minute, though? 2019, we don't even want to recognize our human moral responsibility. Right? We, we blame shift. We make excuses rather than take responsibility for our actions. That's why we hear things like, oh, man, look, I can't help it, you know. I, I, I got a disease that's not my fault. Or, or we hear things like, oh, man, it's not their fault. They just weren't raised right. Or, yeah, yeah, maybe I do this, but look at so-and-so. Look at what they do. At least I don't do that. 
You understand? All the while, we give our dogs more dignity than we, than we treat each other with. Do you understand? Here's why. What do you do with your dog? He goes to the bathroom in the house. You smack him on the nose. Why? You smack him on the nose because you believe that he had the chance to make a better decision. You laugh, you smack him on the nose because next time you want him to make the right decision and not use the bathroom in your house. And in that, listen to me, we treat the dog with more dignity than we treat each other. An accused person wouldn't plead his genetic inheritance or his social upbringing as an excuse for criminal behavior. You understand that entire process of trying, convicting, sentencing, um, doing all these things in the courts, it, it rests on the assumption that you and I as humans are free to make choices. And not only are we free to make those choices, but we are responsible for the choices that we have made. Faced with an alternative, we know that we are able to choose. You understand? Carousel or Effie's? Hmm? And you say, you say, you know what, you know what, I'll just forget it. Carol sales better, I understand, but we're going to go to Effie's because it's closer. It's raining outside. We're just going to go to Effie's. Then you get to Effie's, you order your ice cream, you go to pay, and you realize it's the only place in the universe that doesn't take a card, right? You don't have any cash in your pocket. So now you look like a moron. You got to walk away from the Effie's. And what happens in that moment? I start to get mad. Why? Because I know that faced with an alternative, Carousel, I had the choice to make a better decision. <laughs> Listen to me. We reproach ourselves when we make the wrong decision because we understand that we had the choice to make a different one, to make a better one. You understand? If you want to keep it in the same vein, the, the same like vein of, of uh, local ice cream spots, we... Uh, we act on the assumption that other people are free and responsible as well. For we try to persuade them. Right? That's how we get in the argument. Oh, no, carousel's much better than Effie's. No, 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 oh, this is better. Oh, well, they don't even take cash, bro. Blah, 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 blah. Right? And then we get to arguing. Then you got that one dude in the crowd who's always like, what about swirlies, Travis? Get that trash out. Anybody going to Manassas? Listen to me. But we're acting upon the assumption that other people have the ability to make decisions too. If we didn't assume that, we wouldn't try to persuade them with our convictions. Yet somehow when it comes to our sins, we start looking around all crazy like we didn't have no choice. Yeah, somehow when it comes to whatever happened here or there, somehow when that sin comes about, we start looking around at mom and dad like it was their fault. You drinking because you were father? You've been dead for 40 years. Time to let that ship sail. I'm just saying. Yet somehow when it comes to our own sins, we look around all crazy like I didn't have the choice to choose. Oh, church, listen to me. It's time to wake up. You've been lulled to sleep by the world. We refuse to give now God the reverence that his righteousness demands. And we increasingly refuse to acknowledge our own responsibility, our own human morale. Much less do we sanctify ourselves and repent of our sins in preparation for his coming. Yet somehow we wonder why his presence isn't in our pews anymore. We wonder why his presence can't be found in our homes or in our marriage anymore. 
It's time to wake up. And listen to me, that process can start right now. Right in just a moment, man, we're going we're gonna to open up an invitation, a response, if you will, to his word. First John uh, uh, chapter, chapter 1, verse 9, it tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That process can start here this morning. We need to reverence the Lord once again. We want to feel his presence and accomplish everything that he has already promised for us. We need to reverence him again. We need to sanctify ourselves. Take responsibility for our actions. And that process can start now. And there, might, might I just add, not only do we need to, to cleanse ourselves, to sanctify ourselves, and to reverence the Lord, we need to start teaching our children to do the same. And that process can start right now. Right, the invitation will start here in a second. Some music will start playing. You can come down. You can confess to the Lord right now. Not to me, not to Pastor Larry, not to anybody else. You can confess to the Lord. The Bible tells us he's faithful and just to forgive us. And in that, we are cleansed of all unrighteousness. You can begin to sanctify yourself. Set yourself apart in preparation for his presence. If you're here this morning, you've never asked God to forgive you of your sins. You've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior. Can I just holler at you real quick, just for a second, just, just me and you. Block everything else out like, like nobody else is here. Can I just be real with you? God wants a relationship with you. He is, he is madly, madly in love with you. And he wants a relationship with you. The book of Genesis tells us that, that you were created. We were created in his image. Why on earth would he do that? Because he desires to have a relationship with us. Think about it. Who are the people that you, you're friends with? Most likely there are people that you have things in common with. Thus he created us in his image to have a relationship with him, to have fellowship with him. But our sin has separated us from God. You understand the Bible tells us in the book of Romans that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That is, there was, there was a, a standard, there was, there was a set standard. We have missed that mark that the Lord has set. We have sinned. The Bible tells us that there is a payment for that sin or a wage. It tells us that the wages of sin is death. And that's bad news. Look, I understand. The Bible also goes on to tell us there's nothing that we can do. Right? This is not by works of righteousness, but it is a free gift of God. Right? God loves you so much. He desires a relationship with you so much that he sent his only son down to this earth. Jesus came to this earth. He lived a perfect, sinless life, one that me and you could not, making him the only worthy sacrifice. He died a death on the cross, was buried, proving he was really dead, and rose again on the third day, conquering death and hell, conquering your punishment for your sin. The Bible tells us all we have to do is accept this free gift that God has given us. And you could do that. You could do that here this morning. Right in your seat, right? By just being, being willing to admit these things, that one, I'm a sinner, and by two, that you know that Jesus died on the cross for you, being willing to confess those things to God. You can be saved and have a home in heaven. If you've never done that, I just want to give you that opportunity here this morning before we leave. If I could have every head bowed this morning, 
all those who are Christians praying, if you've never placed your faith and your trust in Jesus, if you've never been forgiven of your sins, I invite you, you could just say a real simple prayer to yourself this morning, confessing these things to God and say, you know what, um, God, I know that I'm a sinner. And God, look, I, I don't understand it all. God, I don't know it all. But right now, the best way that I know how, God, I invite you into my life. I invite you into my heart to be Lord and Savior of my life. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Now look, before anybody's up, before anybody's looking around, I, I don't want to embarrass you. I don't want to have you raise your hand. I'm not going to call you out or call you up here. I just want to be able to celebrate with you. I want to give you that opportunity to share the decision you just made with somebody else. I want to celebrate with you. I maybe want to pray for you. If you placed your faith in Christ for the first time here this morning, would you just look up at me real quick? Just make eye contact with me. Amen, brother. That's the best decision you ever make in your life. You'll never regret it. I've met a million people in this world probably, maybe more, right? I meet people all the time. Never, never met somebody who regretted placing their faith in Jesus Christ. Can I tell you something? There'll be millions, millions who regret not doing so. If you place your faith in him this morning, would you just look up at me? I just want to celebrate with you. Just connect eyes with me. Is there one more? Amen. Amen. That's the best decision you'll ever make, brother. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for this opportunity you've given us to dive into your word. God, I thank you that your word tells us that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us if we'll just confess to you. God, I pray that you would help us. Help us to be bold and step out and start this process of, of sanctifying ourselves once again in preparation for everything that you have for us. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like more information about our ministry, check out our website at battlefieldbaptist.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We'll see you next time.